Hello and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm here with Steve O'Neill, Akash Pound, and our very special guest, Ryan Shorthouse. Welcome, Ryan. Hello. Welcome, Akash. Hi there, Martin. And Steve. Thanks, Martin. So we are going to discuss the firstly the general election because we feel like uh, it's the most important thing going on in politics right now, and the centre is uh, has a voice to be heard, if nothing else. And then once we've discussed the election, we're going to uh, interrogate Ryan on liberal conservatism and bright blue. So first of all, we're going to cover the election. Akash, it's 2017 all over again, isn't it? Um, I think there are some interesting potential uh, similarities, yes. Um, And the result, obviously, uh, well, we'll, we've got to wait a couple more weeks. Um, I think what's interesting about it, um, especially, you know, from from our uh, point of view of of looking at the state of the centre ground um, in this election, is just how, once again, during the campaign, we have seen a rise in support for both the main parties. So there's been this uh, reversion, once again, um, to two-party dominance, um, which people thought not too long ago was you know, rapidly become a, becoming a thing of the past. So, um, I mean, we've done some work on this here over the years at the Institute for Government, um, looking at how, you know, back in the 1950s, say, Labour and the Conservatives used to regularly win sort of 95-odd percent of the vote uh, between them um, and similar share of seats. And, you know, they basically weren't any significant uh, smaller parties. Um, and then you have this decline over, over the subsequent four or five decades. Um, and by sort of 25, uh, 2010, it felt like we were genuinely moving into an era of multi-party politics where our parliaments and minority governments and coalitions were going to become the norm. Um, and then Cameron won his unexpected majority in 2015, of course. Um, and then in 2017, although Theresa May fell short of a majority, actually Labour and the Conservatives combined took over 80% of, of the vote, higher than, than they had done since the 1970s. Um, and as you said in your, in your introduction, it feels like that's, that's where we're heading towards again. You know, just six months ago, we had the Liberal Democrats and the Brexit Party topping the polls. Um, and again, you know, all the talk was that things were, were really starting to, to fragment in terms of the party system. But the campaign has seen people go back to, well, the, the, the two devils they know. Uh, I think that's a a key part of it, isn't it? A lot of the polling seems to indicate that the Conservatives' position has been largely a result of them holding holding together their traditional coalition and the Remain Conservatives, I think, sticking with them. While I think with Labour, it seems to be a lot of people who maybe had gone into don't know coming back to Labour. Steve? Um, I want to do a shameless plug, actually, for a theory I aired a couple of podcasts ago. Um, and this is about the level of lived M support and the ceiling for it. Now, I remember some polling back sort of in the 2014-2015 time. The people who said they were strongly European or passionately European were around about 15%. And if you look at the polls, I'm looking at a bit of paper here, that's the level now. Uh, and I aired that theory a little while ago. And it looked like their support was going to fly above that. I think they polled as high as 24% in June. Um, but it does seem to have come back down uh, to to that kind of level. So I'm uh, giving myself a little pat on the back. It, I may be proved wrong later. We'll see. That's fair enough. Right. I mean, it's interesting because it, there, there is a sense of deja vu in, in terms of the Labour Party share seems to be ticking up as they're picking up some of the Remain voters and voters are starting to realise if you really want to stop Brexit, stop perhaps a hard Brexit, then best to go to Labour. Uh, but it does feel somewhat different, um, I think, for several reasons. The first is, I think the electorate in 2017 didn't feel like an election was necessary. Um, and the way that people voted, I think, was much more in 2016 mode, how they voted in the EU referendum. Whereas I think now, in 2019, I think voters have accepted that there is an impasse, there is a stalemate that needs to be broken, and we need an election. And this sort of get Brexit done mantra, I think, does appeal to quite a lot of people. Whether that actually does 
manifest itself. I mean, it's very unlikely as we're going to be in a period of negotiations, both with the EU and other third countries uh, as a result of free trade agreements. But nonetheless, I think a lot of the public are there. Um, and as such, um, you know, the Conservatives, I think, are doing better than they were doing back in 2017 at this stage in the uh, in the election. The other thing is, I think attitudes towards Jeremy Corbyn have perhaps hardened and become a bit more critical. Um, the sense of him not being a sort of friendly, slightly naive grandpa, but somebody who's actually, uh, you know, got quite extreme views and associated with extreme people. Uh, I think that perhaps has uh, manifest itself more uh, in in this election. Yeah, I mean, the net satisfaction scores for Corbyn are absolutely abysmal. I mean, the latest Ipsos Mori data has him at minus 60. Johnson's just above uh, zero. Um, last time around, both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn were uh, similarly unpopular. They were both at about minus 10. So no party leader, major party leader, has ever been um, as unpopular as Jeremy Corbyn going into an election. And, you know, given that, um, I think it's actually quite remarkable how well Labour is doing in the polls. Because, I mean, first of all, as, as, as you said, Ryan, I mean, I do, I do think that get Brexit done does have just a simple appeal to a lot of voters, as you said, even though, sure, we're going to enter into a new phase of uh, possibly quite lengthy negotiations with the EU. But um, at least there is a deal on the table that Boris Johnson can, can point to. Um, we can at least leave the European Union uh, by Jan January. And I think that appeals to a lot of voters. Uh, more than another set of, of, of negotiations and potentially another Brexit referendum. So given the Brexit position and the unpopularity of Corbyn, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite impressed by, by Labour's performance so far. Uh, and, and what's interesting is that I think the Tory campaign is still haunted by what happened in 2017. And the manifesto, for example, was very safety first. Uh, they don't want to kind of lose the poll lead. I think they feel that they've got through that. And I think the final bit of the campaign is Donald Trump's visit, where they feel that could have quite an impact, considering uh, the real uh, strong dislike of Trump within the UK. But it's interesting, just tonight, for example, Dominic Cummings, who is a senior advisor to, to Boris uh, and obviously led the Vote Leave campaign, has written quite controversially, I think, a blog, um, call, a call for arms amongst Vote Leave supporters to get Boris in and stop a hung parliament uh, uh, to get the deal done, um, which shows there's still a bit of a worry that a hung parliament is still possible. And really, I, I think if the Conservatives are going to stay in power and get the deal through, I think you know a hung parliament is not going to be possible for them because there is no other party to do an mm. alliance with now. Um, so they need to get the majority. Yeah, and that's the the other the other negative uh, on the conservative side in terms of in terms of polls and vote share is that there isn't really anywhere uh, for them to to, to to squeeze more pro Brexit vote from. It doesn't seem, and the Brexit party is down at what three four percent. Um, so there may be some further transfers from Labour potentially to the Conservatives. But Labour, on the other hand, if they can continue to, to squeeze the Liberal Democrats, um, could narrow that gap hmm. further over the next couple of weeks sufficiently that, yeah, Hong Parliament becomes a realistic outcome. I suppose we also have to consider what would traditionally be the don't knows, but in this case would be, oh, God, look at the state of them, which, given the unpopularity of the parties and the leaders, I wonder whether there is still a fairly sort of broad, maybe not that deep pool of don't knows who will end up holding their nose, whether for Labour, Conservative or whoever, possibly. I was reading Matthew Goodwin, um, who's Professor of Politics at Kent University, and he was saying that there is uh, a good proportion of voters who are still undecided, quite a significant amount, and they tend to go Labour. Hmm. Um, so that'll be interesting in terms of mm. how what that happens in the next couple mm. of weeks. And yeah. especially as a lot of traditional or long-standing Labour voters have gone to don't know mm. uh, because they can't stand Corbyn, the part, state of the party, anti-Semitism, 
and all of the various things, but have been beginning to break back to Labour, which I think it goes to show that Paula was right when she said that uh, leave and remain are not the only things that motivate people these days. But I think now's a good time to come on to the manifestos. So you've mentioned the Conservatives' Safety First manifesto, Ryan. You've mentioned the slogan that uh, titles it of Get Brexit Done and Unleash Britain's Potential. So what have we seen in the manifesto, Steve? And um, what uh, what of their content should centrists be looking to support? Um, a lot to get through there. Um, let's start with the Tory one, because the thing that struck me, and I think I couldn't work out, was where are I with austerity? So for a while we've been looking like there's going to be a sort of consensus in terms of big increase in public spending. But actually the Tory manifesto was very kind of light in public spending. Now I know they did some of it already in the budget, but it looks like they uh, are undecided about how far they want to go that way. Um, on uh, Labour, obviously, are the absolute opposite of that. They're kind of throwing everything at it, and the Lib Dems are somewhere in the middle of that. I think that would be the summary. Okay. I want to talk about affordability. Well, really, I want to talk about credibility. So there's a poll in, uh, that YouGov did, which appears in The Times today. Do you think the party's manifesto promises are affordable or unaffordable? Now, we've talked a lot on here about where the centre ground is on the economy and um, how much the sort of political debate has moved on. But I just want to talk, to put some context to the um, the different manifestos. The Conservatives, relatively sort of steady as she goes. Labour, the complete opposite. Um, in terms of whether or uh, whether people think a party's manifesto promises are affordable, 37% of people think the Conservatives' promises are affordable, which is not great. Labour's is 17. 17% of the public think that Labour can be trusted to deliver on their promises. And I think we do have to consider maybe the um, the old centre ground around economic credibility and leadership and uh, trust. Maybe it's not completely gone away. Akash? I think... Um 17% I might have <laughs> might have expected it to be even even lower among, um, mm. among people who've um, actually looked at the um, the long long list of, of commitments and the price tags I mean obviously the reality is most voters do not know the detail of what's in the manifestos mm. um, or how they're how much they're going to cost or how the parties mm. are proposing to, to, to pay for them but mm. I think it's, it's quite clear that for Labour to implement everything that's in their manifesto from the nationalisations, the free tuition fees mm. and free social care and childcare and massive increases mm. on public service spending as mm. well, um, simply based on the few tax rises that they've spelled out in the manifesto mm. is, is just is just not, not credible. Mm. Um, so that, that's, that's fairly apparent, I think, to, based on, on any sort of basic uh, analysis of the numbers. Hmm. I mean, what wasn't quite interesting was considering the sort of outrageous radicalism of the Labour manifesto, why the Tories didn't feel that they could spend a little bit more, considering the narrative of going beyond austerity, reaching out more to people on modest incomes, investing in public services, why they felt they didn't need, they could do that, because they had room, There was considering the amount that Labour were uh, chucking at public services, they had really a window to spend a little bit more, but they decided not to. And I suppose that's... Um, for two reasons. One, again, it's the safety first thing, which is they literally didn't want to put much at all in the manifesto. And, and interestingly, some of the policy commitments were very vague. You know, some, I think there was one bit which said something like, we will end discrimination in the workplace, which is not really a policy proposal. It's just a kind of wishy-washy mm. aim. So I think just the fear of newspaper columnists journalists, think tankers going over it uh, and picking up errors and putting that into the newspapers and promoting that. They were trying to avoid that. Mm. So I think that's part of it. The second is, I do think there are a lot of people in the Tory party still who feel that um, to the centre-right does well in this country when the argument about the need for vis fiscal discipline is, is central. Uh, and there are fears that, you know, perhaps 
you know, if we allow, if we're a bit too kind of lax on the fiscal policy side, then we're just kind of letting Labour win the argument. Um, and fiscal discipline needs to be central to a Tory movement. We need to convince the public that that's what's needed uh, and show that the Tory party are doing it. They do feel still that that's something where the centre-right does pretty well, as it did in 2010 and 2015 to a certain extent. I must admit that the, the words fiscal discipline were not ones that I would associate with this campaign, this election at all, before the Conservative manifesto launch. So is that something where the, the rhetoric has run ahead of the promises, do you think? Because there has been a, a lot of mood music around the sort of uh, opening of the tax a bit. Yes, there has. Um, and, you know, there, has, there will be a slight increase in um, day-to-day spending. Um, but obviously, if they want to go further, they're going to have to raise taxes. And they've said there's a kind of triple mm. uh, tax lock on national insurance, VAT and income tax. So if they want to turn the taps on elsewhere, then they're going to have to uh, find taxation from elsewhere, uh, which is not comfortable ground for the Tories, unless they decide to borrow more. But of course, in the manifesto, they also said they want to run um, uh, a surplus on current budget, uh, day-to-day spending. So that's not going to be feasible. Um, But I do think there are particular public services where there's definitely a desire to spend more. The NHS, but also, I think, uh, under a Boris administration, compared to a Theresa May and certainly a Cameron administration, schools and certainly police and prisons is also getting a bit more uh, spending. Other public services, I don't think austerity is going to be over. And certainly for people on uh, who are reliant on benefits, uh, you know, there was nothing, certainly in the Tory manifesto, but also surprisingly in the Labour manifesto, very little on people who are reliant on out-of-work and in-work benefits. Mm -hmm. Um, And yes, the freeze is coming to an end. Um, the benefit freeze on out, the value of out-of-work benefits next year. Um, but a lot of people are, are, who are reliant on benefits, I don't feel they, they think austerity will be over. Steve? Yeah, picking up on that, um, a lot of the things in Labour, and actually some of the Lib Dem things are quite universal offers. Mm. So Lib Dem is universal, childcare, Labour, free broadband for all that kind of stuff, mm. rather than the kind of targeted things like benefits. And I wonder if that is for a retail policy perspective, because they think they want to, they can get more votes that way rather than appealing to people who are perhaps relying on those services. Mm. Um, the other thing I want to say about Labour is that lots of these things are popular. There's lots of talk about how nationalisations are popular. The thing is, if it, if it is not seen as credible, and this is what keeps kind of coming up, I think, in a lot of the coverage of this stuff, people, people like the idea of free broadband and the rest of it, but they don't think it's credible, so perhaps don't give Labour the kind of electoral credit that they want out of it. Well, I'm sure that Prime Minister Miliband can tell you all about popular policies related, um, leading to election uh, victory. But just on, just on that, Labour Party pledges. So this is from the same YouGov Times Whole. If Labour wins a general election and forms a government, do you think they would or would not meet their pledges? To introduce a four-day working week would not meet this pledge, 79, sorry, 69%. 69% of people think that one of their headline pledges will not be met. 17 people don't know, which leaves all of 13% thinking that they would actually meet this, this pledge. That's Terrible from any party's point of view. Now, the uh, 47% of people do think that uh, Labour would only raise taxes for the top 5% of earners. Now, I think we all know that if Labour somehow managed to uh, win and had to implement the manifesto that they're desperately throwing out the front and centre, I think we all know that, that they wouldn't be that. It's basically a lie. Um, well, I, well, I was just going to say on the manifesto, uh, uh, there are some areas of consensus, um, particularly on the environment. Um, I think there were lots of policies. Some required a lot more state investment, uh, particularly on the Labour side. But there was, you know, a lot on the environment policy. And, you know, Linton Crosby, always the kind of great election strategist, always talked about... um, I can't remember the phrase, throwing stuff Get, off the boat. Getting the barnacles Bolts off the, of the boat. boat. That's mm-hmm. it. Um, and it's interesting that Boris has made the environment a kind of central part of the Conservative message. Uh, and I think that's for two reasons. 
A, the people around him, not only his girlfriend, but a lot of his political allies, like the goldsmiths, for example, are very, very keen green enthusiasts, uh, as well as his father, of course, uh, who's a big conservationist. So, and I think to a certain extent, Boris is. But B, also politically, I think because they are pursuing a kind of quite hardline Brexit strategy and a hardline approach on crime, law and order, which they think they will, will appeal to people on modest incomes, working class people in North Wales and North England, which they need to secure the majority. There is a little bit of fear that they're exposing themselves to the Lib Dems, for example, in the South, and that you know maybe issues like the environment will help reassure those people and win those people over. The thing I was going to raise um, isn't so much a policy discussion, but a much wider discussion about society is that um, when you've got Jeremy Corbyn as the leader of the Labour Party and that he is, I mean, he's unpopular, but he, he's not, you know, he's still leading a party that's polling in the 30s. Um, the question becomes, what will think about future capitalism? Because he is, as Boris said in the debate the other night, uh, his reputation is being anti-capitalist. I mean, but he's fairly uh, sort of clear on what his answer to things like inequality are and the economy is to, is to increase the size of the state, increase the sort of parts of the economy the state owns, etc. What we haven't really got from, I think, Lib Dems or the Tories um, is a sense of what they think are the answers to the challenges that have come to capitalism since the sort of crash and the following years. And I feel that maybe if we had an election with Brexit, which would be magic to and disappear, we'd be talking about something around that. So that's why I'm really interested to hear, but I doubt we are going to. Mm. I mean, there was one thing about the Tory manifesto which I really liked, which it wasn't offering this brave new world, a kind of complete radical social economic model. Um, because as the polling that you cited said earlier, voters are very sceptical about that. And actually, it is quite a down-to-earth manifesto, which is a little bit more extra support from the people that really need it, you know, mm. people on modest incomes who are struggling. Whether that's sufficient or not, I'm not sure. But the focus, I think, is right. And a bit of modesty for manifestos about what can be achieved, I think, you know, may not be exciting that politically, but I think philosophically it's quite mm. right. No, that's that is a good point that the um, the election between the sort of the radical change monger might then find themselves up against someone who's almost steady as they go, yet whilst at the same time they are offering the most radical form of Brexit, having won the change versus stay the same manifesto. All right, well, let's get on to some of this stuff that we're, we're touching around the edges of the philosophy behind all of this. So, Ryan, we invited you on here tonight to talk about Bright Blue. What is Bright Blue? Okay, so we are an independent think tank for liberal conservatism, uh, and we're a pressure group as well, so we don't just do the kind of bread and butter that think tanks do, like the Institute for Government, which is, you know, quite detailed, thoughtful policy papers, um, um, and, you know, I suppose we think of think tanks as both vetting and creating government policy. And that's certainly the role that we fulfill. But we're also a pressure group in the sense of we want to build a community of like minded people who subscribe to liberal conservative values, whether it's students, young professionals. And just as people say, I'm a libertarian or I'm a socialist, we want people to say, I'm a liberal conservative for them to understand that and for them to see Bright Blue as a home for that. All right. Was there something that inspired you to to set it up was there a particular sort of point in time or um something that happened to make you go i think we need this yeah i mean i suppose two reasons i was working at the social market foundation in the earlier part of this decade small and very good think tank and i think you've already had ian mulhern on who was my boss and very very good taught me a lot uh, and I suppose I learned the skills and felt, actually, I'd quite like to have a go at setting up a think tank. Um, I feel I've had my apprenticeship at the SMF and, 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 can, and can go and do that at Bright Blue. But I also thought there was a gap in the market. Um, and I think there was two things. One, Cameron was taking the Conservative Party or was attempting to take the Conservative Party in a more liberal, modernising direction. And I think there needed to be a kind of arm's length, independent body that represented that and brought people together but also and this was the coalition days remember I, I did feel that there was you know there were consistencies in thinking but 
between the kind of Lib Dems in coalition and the Tories in coalition. And almost, I wanted a kind of coalition think tank which kind of represented the cleavage between the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives uh, and to have an organisation that kind of represented that which drew on both liberal and conservative philosophical traditions to show, you know, it's not just a political exercise. There is philosophical synergy between these two um, uh, parties. Uh, and so that was the, probably the kind of the two main overriding reasons for mm. it. <laughs> uh, I recall at the, in the early days of, of, of the coalition, um, Within uh, within government, there were there were a few people. Nick Bowles, for example, well, he may not have been a minister at that point, but he was quite influential. Um, they were talking about um, liberal liberal conservatism in, in that way as as a potentially shared ideology that that could drive the coalition. And Nick Bowles, I think, even wrote a book, um, sort of making the case for how it could become a sort of semi permanent alliance. Um, but it didn't obviously seem to last, and I don't. It, it seemed that within within the two parties, there weren't that many um, there weren't that many leading figures who actually thought fundamentally there was a that confluence of of values that that you you were obviously trying to promote. I mean, is that is that your reading of it? Why why, why do you feel they? I think it was probably more forced upon them in terms of the result of the 2015 election, which led to the kind of collapse of the Lib Dems. So the Lib Dems weren't in play anymore to partner up with. But certainly, I remember when there were doubts about whether the Tories could win a majority in that 2015 election, many people thought that Ed Miliband could come through. You know, a lot of organisations, I remember The Economist and Financial Times, they were gunning for another coalition. That was what they were advocating. Um, so I, I think, you know, that perhaps if we had the same kind of arithmetic from the election, I think there could have been a push for another coalition if there was another hung parliament, but the numbers turned out the way they did. Interestingly, what you said about Nick Bowles in 2013, he did do a speech to us and he sort of advocated this idea of, um, you know, a kind of uh, people standing on a kind of national liberal ticket in elections, which were kind of a joint, you know, if you were kind of a co coalition representative, the old national liberal party, which Heseltine, of course, when he first stood as an MP, stood as a national liberal MP before he went into the Tory party. Um, and sort of reviving that was something that Nick pushed quite strongly. But I remember right at the start of the coalition, you know, really where there was the consensus was around this idea of the big society um, and decentralisation, the idea that we should put more power in the hands of local communities, professionals working in public services, rather than having a very top-down, technocratic, controlling state. And I think that was where the kind of ideological consistencies between the Lib Dems and the Tories um, were. And I think that could have continued, but I think politics, as it always does, got in the way. I think that's probably quite a good time to... Um, to get on to the, not just the ideological, but the philosophical that kind of goes behind that. So what is liberal conservatism? So can you maybe talk us through some of the, I suppose, big ideas or big principles, the, some of the defining issues in your eyes? Well, I think it's really saying that, you know, we need to draw on ideas of freedom and opportunity and openness, as well as the human need for connections and community and rootedness. And David Willis articulated it, I think, quite beautifully when he talked about the wings and the roots that, you know, in a person's life at different points in their life, you know, the wings become very important, which is the sense of I have the freedom and the opportunity to flourish in life no matter what my background is. Um, and then particularly as we get older, we crave perhaps a bit more of the roots of community, of settled life uh, and stability and security for ourselves and for our families. So really, it's about bringing the wings and the roots together, really, is, is what we say. And I suppose more specifically, you know, I think there are specific principles behind it. So we would say, for example, that we're pro-market and not free market that, you know, in consumer markets and public services, a market-based system seems to have yield good results, but we don't just leave markets to their own devices. 
Um, this idea that there's a free market is complete nonsense. All markets are regulated, but to different intensities, and getting the right intensity is is right. So, you know, a pro-market take which says that the government and other actors do have a role to play in correcting market in in inefficiencies and uh, inequities. Um, I think the other is a kind of very positive take. Um, and this probably distinguishes it from traditional conservatism, a very positive take on the direction of society, that as society has become more socially liberal, then that's a good thing. People are happier. Uh, and I've always noticed in the kind of post-liberal world, the communitarian world, they're very critical of social liberalism. They think it's led to a kind of breakdown in um, family life, in civic life. But none of the data backs that up. You know, we're spending as much time with our family and our friends as we did way back in the 1950s. And there are lots of good data behind that. So, you know, there's a kind of positivity around the kind of social liberalism that we've seen, which is in contrast to some more of the social conservatism. But also, I think, um, a questioning a bit on the kind of determinism and fatalism on the left, which says an individual's destiny is shaped by things out of their control, whether it's inequality, their genes, their parenting. So, well, of course, all of those things are important and provide context for how well people do. But, you know, if people have the right support in life, no matter their background, no matter their socio-demographic characteristics, they can do well with the right support and they can flourish. So there's a kind of positiveness about the direction mm. of society and individual potential, I think. Um, but we've got 10 principles. I could go through all of them, but that would probably take up all the podcast. Akash? Yes. Um, so um, I've got your 10 principles in front of me, in fact, and I was looking at them earlier and, and listening to your summary of them now. And I suppose what I'm interested to, to, to know is where would you say that your vision of liberal conservatism differs from uh, a sort of Blairite New Labour ideology? Because a lot of the language is, is, is quite similar, um, pro-market, not free market, sort of making markets work for people. Um, you, you talk about sort of supporting aspiration and opportunity, but sort of matching that with, with support for the vulnerable and, and social justice. Um, one of your principles you didn't mention just now is also sort of evidence, not ideology. That was quite a big sort of new labor thing. What's right is what works. Um, and, you know, I say that not as a, not as a criticism, but just as an observation that um, you, you've given it the label liberal conservatism. Obviously, you're created in the coalition uh, context. Um, you're called bright blue. Um, but is there how much overlap would you say there is with what with what Blair was trying to do and what might be the, the dividing lines? Definitely a lot of overlap because we are part of that kind of big centrist space so yes um, and there's lots of things which I fully agreed with during the new labour period uh, particularly around education reforms um, short start centres uh, some of the redistributive e efforts that the government made um, I was fully supportive of so there is a lot of similarities including perhaps in the language where I think there's probably a little bit of difference um, and obviously, we're in very different times now compared to when Blair was in power and issues and priorities have changed. I would say that the, the kind of institutions that conservatism care about, whether that's elite schools, marriage, uh, the property ladder, good homes, I think, you know, maybe it's a point of emphasis, but we would say we shouldn't be shy about celebrating the best institutions, whether it's marriage, home ownership, good schools, we shouldn't be trying to take those down, see them as kind of traditional, uh, too traditional, too um, uh, sort of old fogeyish, but actually trying to get more people to access those institutions, to diversify, diversify those institutions and bring more people into them. And that for us is conservatism at its best, when we celebrate those elite institutions, but try and you know, open them up to as many people as possible. So I think it's probably, you know, some of the institutions that conservatives care about. Um, maybe New Labour was a little bit more, you know, I remember Anthony Giddens, for example, the sociologist, was very about kind of 
family relationships and marriage, it felt very transactional and from a very individualistic viewpoint, which is, you know, I should be able to access marriage when and where I want uh, as a form of generating the most happiness for me. It was a kind of utilitarian argument. Uh, and I suppose we would say, actually, people do, it's not just all about individual choice and agency. There is also responsibilities that people have. Um, and I suppose that's not just on the institutions, but the kind of um, social, economic, environmental responsibilities that we have, um, I think is something that liberal conservatives would want to stress more, and particularly in the fiscal space, where obviously after that first new Labour government, spending did start to increase quite a lot. And we would say, actually, you know, there should be constraints, restraints on uh, public spending, because that's not only economically the right thing to do, but morally, considering that the burden is then just placed on younger generations. Um, so, and that, I suppose, brings me to kind of another aspect, which is maybe the intergenerational angle as well, and thinking about how we take action from a kind of environmental, economic, social responsibility viewpoint for future generations as well. I'm not saying that Blair wasn't kind of mindful of that, but probably it wasn't as much a priority as it is today, I think. So let's talk about the Conservative Party um, more generally. So it's seen by many people as having moved to the right. Do you think that's fair? And as a Liberal Conservative, how do you respond? Do you stay and fight for what you believe is right and try to move the party, if it has moved to the right, back towards your, yourselves in the centre? So is there a sort of, what's the future for Liberal Conservatism at the moment? Well, it's interesting because a lot of independents um, who have lost the whip because they voted um, uh, to stop No Deal back in the autumn, earlier in the autumn, now identify as Liberal Conservatives. So Rory Stewart, who's standing for London Mayor, David Gore, for example, these people will say, I'm not a Liberal Democrat but I'm a liberal conservative. So they do think there is a middle ground between the liberal Democrats and uh, the Conservative Party, and they identify very firmly as uh, liberal conservatives, and that's obviously part of their lexicon. In terms of Watford Bright Blue, as I said, we're an independent organisation, so we don't, you know, we're not affiliated to the Conservative Party. In terms of the direction of the Conservative Party, you know, there are still... Yes, there are Liberal Conservatives out of it, but there are still a lot of Liberal Conservatives within it. And I would say for those Liberal Conservatives who are MPs, you know, it, considering the Conservative Party in a first-past-the-post system is likely to stay a very dominant party, it's better to stay and fight in. And I've always thought about this about centrists as well. Instead of forming a new centrist party, sprinkle those centrists across the spectrum. So you know, making sure that when governments change, as they inevitably do, you have a core of centrists in each party represented right at the top, you know, being involved in government. And I think that's really important. And I, I think it's always better to stay in and fight and shape it in the direction. So that's my, my general point. In terms of has it gone away from a liberal conservative direction? I think on Brexit is taking a very hard line approach. But I do think it is quite ambiguous the Boris government. I don't think it has a clear ideological um, set of parameters. You know, on the one hand, you've got uh, a kind of toughness on law and order, which Theresa May and Cameron didn't have, and a toughness on Brexit. But on the same time, and I suppose this is the inevitable logic of the strategy they're pursuing, because they're reaching out to people on more modest incomes, their fiscal approach and certainly their kind of social policy approach in terms of education, childcare, is much more probably what you would regard as progressive. Uh, and as I said earlier, the environment is much more... Towards the end of Theresa May's regime, it did become more central, but certainly in the Boris regime, it's much more central. So it's a mixed bag. And broadly, I think there are now two camps vying for Boris's attention. On the one hand, you've got the kind of freedom fighters, the kind of Liz Trusses, the Dominic Robs, the libertarians who have their think tanks like the IEA, the ASI, the CPS. But then you have the kind of communitarians as well, the kind of post-liberals, which, you know, May and Nick Timothy were very much part of, which is we need to stop 
thinking about kind of individual agency and opportunities, also about the kind of bonds that unite us. And, you know, a lot of people think, oh, look at the cabinet, there's loads of um, libertarians, but also a lot of people in number 10, like Danny Kruger, who's now becoming uh, is now fighting to become an MP, but was his political secretary. Tim Montgomery uh, is the social justice advisor. These people are actually more on the communitarian wing. So actually, he surrounded himself with different parts of the party. And I think Boris will deliberately pursue a strategy where you can't really pigeonhole him. You can't identify him as a particular type of conservative. He, he tries to speak to all conservatives. And actually, Cameron tried to do that. And it's much more successful than the Theresa May approach, which was to slag off the libertarians, to slag off the kind of metropolitan liberals, what, what she deemed to be metropolitan liberals, liberal conservatives, and alienate them and therefore don't have a kind of ring of supporters, both individuals and organisations, there to support you when, when you're back is up against the wall. I mean, is that something that's absolutely necessary, given the Conservatives' strategy involves trying to take places like the Bishop Auckland's, the Workington, some of the um, sort of places that might identify as leave that have not been traditional Conservative areas? Are they the sort of places where um, the sort of tax cut, sack the workers uh, type Conservatives of Labour caricature is that the sort of place where that's just not going to work? And so it's absolutely necessary for the Conservatives to um, to sort of to try that strategy. And sorry, before I, I finish, I just have to say that James Kirkup has written a piece in The Times about One Nation Conservatism not yet being dead, and I should credit him for inspiring me to ask questions along those lines. Yes, and I saw that piece with James, which is um, characteristically very good. Um, well, the manifesto, as I said, was very focused on how you support those people on modest incomes uh, in those sorts of seats that you talked about. Um, and so gone was, let's cut inheritance tax, uh, let's um, cut inheritance tax further, cut corporation tax further. All of those things went. It was very squarely, how do we support those people who are struggling, very low, modest incomes? But there wasn't a kind of consistency in the ideological approach. So you did have, on the one hand, uh, you know, let's cut um, national insurance by raising the primary threshold for class one employees' national insurance. So that was a tax-cutting measure. But then on the other hand, it was about more investment in the NHS. So there was no, you know, Boris doesn't have ideological consistency. It's a very, it was a very political manifesto, squarely focused on how you win votes. And Dominic Cummings is the same. You know, Dominic Cummings isn't a libertarian or one-nation conservative. He's a conservative who literally bothered about winning and will use every tool that he has to win. So this brings me back to my point, which is Boris will not be put in any camp. He will use various different public policy tools to reach out to those white van man, blue collar um, voters. Steve? Um, Labour's uh, sort of famous problem in terms of you are a centrist Labour supporter or, or member is that their membership now is considered to be quite left-wing. And so you're only going to get someone who's fairly left-wing, like a Corbyn, being as their leader. Now, I've not heard as much about it in terms of the Conservative Party, but the rhetoric was very much that only a Brexiteer like Johnson could win that leadership election. Um, which brings us back to, could a Liberal Conservative like Rory Stewart ha have much chance in future leadership elections? Or is that going to be hard? I think it will be hard because he's now left the party to so run as an independent against a Tory candidate. So uh, I think it would be hard for someone like Rory. Um, I mean, is you know, Boris calls himself a liberal conservative. Michael Gove calls himself a liberal conservative. So a lot of people are using the term. Uh, and in many ways, you know, in terms of the fiscal approach, which is less uh, strict than, say, David Gork and Rory Stewart, some people would say that's more left-wing than it is right-wing. Uh, and then people talk about Boris's history when he was mayor. It felt like he was running a much more kind of liberal, um, focused uh, mayoralty. And then it was only when Brexit happened that he became much more right-wing. And I think some... Bre I mean, I voted for Remain and thought the best outcome would have been to pursue a very soft Brexit. 
immediately after the referendum to reflect the narrowness of the referendum result. And I think a general consensus in the British public, which is uh, we agree with the kind of common market and economic independency, but we don't like the political federalism of the EU. But a lot of Brexiteers would say, you know, you're, you are framing Brexit and the decision to vote Brexit as quite a right-wing Little England thing, when you know, people like Dan Hannan, Saeed Kamal, these sorts of people, including Boris and Michael Gove, would say, actually, for us, it was quite a liberal decision. It was to be more globalist, to make the immigration system more equal between EU and non-EU countries. I'm not saying that everybody voted for Brexit thought like that. Certainly, they didn't. But, you know, Boris is very... I think would be very defensive about the idea that Brexit makes him more hardline and populist. He would say that he was voting that for liberal globalist reasons. Well, and do you think then, if uh, if the Conservatives do win a majority and 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 Boris's deal is implemented, um, having finally closed um, closed that chapter, um, do you think a Boris Johnson-led Conservative government might then? Pursue a more um, a, a more open liberal relationship with with the rest of the world in terms of not actually having a particularly um, you know restrictive approach to immigration, I suppose, in, in, in particular, um, and and also kind of embracing maybe liberalism in other areas as well. Well, they'll have to because if they want to sign these free trade agreements, the third country will want us to relax our visa regime. Um, I mean, it's funny, really, because a lot of people who voted for leave in terms of voters did want to see a reduction in immigration. But it could well be that once we leave the EU and have signed all these trade deals, that net migration levels rise relative to the current situation in the EU. Because, you know, that's what those countries will be asking for. The big thing from the UK is to relax our visa regimes. And they've said that publicly. Many um, of the people who um, voted up or were partly mo- or largely motivated by immigration would say that it's not necessarily a numbers issue but a control one which is a, a different angle that you're, than the one you were coming at it. Yes, and I, I take that and I think that um, you know, being able to determine who specifically comes in on the basis of skills I think um, is something that the public generally support. Um, in terms of, I mean I just think you know Boris has said it about the people's priorities. I don't like him saying the people because it sounds in kind of academic literature quite populist. And um, But nonetheless, you know, he's talked about investment in the NHS, um, tackling crime, improving education. These are all centre ground stuff. And he's not really talking about mass privatisation of these things. If anything, the focus is on increasing spending in these things uh, a little bit more. So um, you know, I, I don't see Boris Johnson as a radical, let's create a Singapore on Thames in the UK, radical libertarian. I don't see that. I see his domestic agenda being quite in the sort of Cameroon, Theresa May, One Nation, even Blairite camp. Um, and I think that's how it, that's how he'll govern. Um, you know, I think the thing about Boris is that he, as a personality... Um, is somebody you know who's quite controversial the language that he uses that's what upsets people i think his policy agenda when it comes to domestic policy will not be that radical and that's reflected in the manifesto which is very conservative with a small c yeah i mean of course one of the uh the the, the at least attack lines that labor and others are using against the, the conservatives um relates to what you know, free trade deals might lead to in terms of, of cutting standards um, or opening up the NHS to, 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 to competition is obviously the one that's been in the news recently. Um, but also there's talk about whether whether a conservative government might be willing to, to cut environmental and, and social standards to do, those, to do those trade deals. I mean, from what you've been saying just now, you see that as unlikely, do you? I think from a principle point of view there's not there's not a desire to create a kind of bargain basement britain 
Britannia um, Unchained. Britannia Unchained. I don't get that from Boris. Uh, and Michael, when he was Environment Secretary, did talk about uh, maintaining EU regulations on uh, the environment or even going further on them, for example, on issues like air quality, where he was talking about subscribing to World Health Organization limits rather than the EU-derived limits at the moment. So I don't think there's a kind of desire philosophically to go in that direction. However, there is going to be huge pressure to sign those free trade agreements. Um, and this is the problem with Boris's approach relative to Theresa's approach on Brexit, which was more aligned with the EU. The further you go from the EU and the more you differentiate, the more you therefore rely on free trade agreements across the world and doing those quickly and securing them quickly. Uh, and therefore, even though there may not be a philosophical desire to do it, I think there may be a lot of political pressure to look at relaxation around workers and environmental um, regulation. And so I do worry about that, yeah. And I worry, of course, about, you know, saying the deadline for a free, free, free trade agreement is December 2020. I think that's very unlikely. And if that means going to a no-deal situation, then I think that is profoundly damaging, but also profoundly unconservative to make such a radical departure from an institution that we've been entangled in for the last several decades. Uh, I would be very alarmed by that. Right, well, uh, we don't like to end on a uh, worrying note such as that. We like to usually end on, well, all of this is going to be fine and the centrists are going to be all right and uh, everyone will be nice and moderate, but um, maybe it won't. So, Well, I think, I mean, the final thing to say is I think really what happens for centrists is how they respond to that crunch point at the end of next year when a no deal is a likely scenario what can be done, if anything, um, to stop that from happening and what liberal conservatives within the Conservative Party will do to stop it, if mm. anything. Um, well, I think the recent history of moderates in the main parties is uh, all mouth and no trousers. There seems to be an awful lot of talk about, well, we're going to do something, we're definitely going to do something, anytime now we're going to do something. And... Um, it doesn't seem to have... So, I mean, the Labour moderate Party... Moderate by kind of thinking, moderate by nature, I think, sometimes, isn't it? That some, sometimes quite reasonable, moderate people, you know, are kind of worried about, you know, have I got this completely right? I see both sides, and therefore, you know, and I think that's... A lack of bruise, often. I think that's probably where centrists fall down, really. Mm. You know, they maybe give credit and sort of see some of the good sides in people who... Maybe don't warrant that. Well, I think that's much more hopeful. So basically, the, pro the problem is for moderates is they're too nice and uh, they need to get their hands dirty now and again. All right, but Ryan, thank you so much. It's been really, re it's been really good to have you. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. Akash, thank you very much. Cheers. Steve, thank you very much. Cheers. So you've been listening to the No Man's Land podcast. I really hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, please share it widely and make as many people as possible aware of it. Thank you very much for your time. Goodbye.